I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 23. Let's look at verse 5 together. We've been working through this for a number of weeks now, as Sherry said, four months. But I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like a lot of things are that way anyways during this period of time since about March. Um, Psalm 23, verse 5. We'll round out with verse 6 next week. King David writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We get to this point in the psalm, and I think verses 1 through 4, where we're sheep, if we put ourselves in the psalm, and we very much should, uh, claim the Lord is my shepherd from the beginning, and then be sheep in the psalm. Now all of a sudden it takes a little turn, and I have preached on Psalm 23 at funerals, I've heard others preach on Psalm 23 at funerals. I've heard Psalm 23 spoken at funerals. I've spoken at it at funerals myself many times. And I think one through four, people are like, yep, this is very nice. This is very nice. And then you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There are a lot of different reactions people have to that. Mostly, I think they just ignore it. They're not sure what to do with it. They ignore that passage. Okay, I'm not sure why he's doing that, but I'm sure it's a nice thing. Go on to the next part of the passage, right? Because then it's an oil, which I think confuses us too. And then my cup overflows, and we're okay with that as long as there are paper towels around. Like, we're, we're, we kind of tune out some of these things. I've not heard many people preach on that specific part of the passage, but I would suggest to you that as you consider it in the context of the passage, and I think the video we saw... Uh, it had the circle in the middle and this line, the enemies kind of at the very end. I think it was an interesting way to represent it. This is a powerful part of the psalm about God's care. About God's care for us when it seems like things are really out of control. And God takes control. It's a powerful moment in the psalm. And so we've been making the point the last few weeks that the shepherd offers his care if we live under his authority. And what we've seen last week, a very sort of vivid portrayal of that in your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and the rod is the thing that beats off the foes that would try and take the sheep or do damage to the sheep. There are threats that are all around. We talked about that, but in a broad sense, now there's a very specific threat that's in view, my enemies. One thing we didn't say about the rod and the staff is that the staff could also be used at the end of the day to count the sheep. When they're brought in, and they're brought into a safe area to sleep together and rest, the shepherd could count the sheep with the staff and make sure that they were all there so they could, in fact, rest in safety with the shepherd. And on the one hand, that's what God is doing if he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, is he giving us a place to rest, but he's doing more. And you can also notice in this part of the psalm now, David has made a shift. Even though he's living under the care of the shepherd, he changes his words, and now it appears that he's not a sheep anymore, but a human David, living under the care and the sovereignty of God. And the key thing to recognize, it's the same point, just reworded that we've been making, is that if, if we're going to, God's sovereignty really works, only works in our lives when we relent and allow him to be sovereign. It only is going to have effect in our lives when we simply say, your will be done, not mine. In some ways, it's just that simple. So David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
And I think one of the many reasons this perplexes us, not only are we confused why our enemies would be at a dinner party, but I think a lot of us don't think we have enemies. People might not like us, but the question is, as you read that, do I even have enemies? Are there enemies around that would do me harm? Well, we can at least look at King David and say, King David had enemies. He had a bunch of them. Real physical enemies. King David famously had Goliath as an enemy and overcame by the power of God. King David, uh, his own brothers, before he became king, were sometimes at least adversarial, if not a little like an enemy at times. And then, of course, one of his great enemies would be King Saul himself, who tried to kill David multiple times and tried to do him in and chased him down. And you can read in First Chronicles chapter 18, you can read a little short, about the first six or seven verses are all about David's enemies and how he overcame them, if you want to read more about that. But one of his greatest and the most heart-wrenching enemies that he ends up having is his own son Absalom. Eventually, Absalom is chasing him, trying to take his kingdom, his own son. And it's heart-wrenching to read that. In fact, I was reflecting on it this week. One of the, I think one of the most difficult sort of and emotional passages in the Old Testament is when David discovers that his son, who was chasing him and trying to usurp his kingdom and trying to kill David, is now dead. And David says in 2 Samuel 18, it says, The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he wept, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And enemies are hard enough already if we have them, but then to have your own son and the emotion of that, that David felt of how to deal with that. He dealt with it with, it with Saul, how to navigate that. He dealt with it with Absalom. And our enemies that we might have in this life, if we have them, might not be so pronounced, might not be so emotionally charged as that. But frankly, if you just live life at all, I don't know if you've noticed this, sometimes people just don't like you. There's some people who naturally connect with you, some people don't connect with you. And in fact, they really rub each other the wrong way. So maybe not enemies, but certainly not friends. There's a, a I was reminded of a great scene in the original Star Wars movie where uh, Luke walks into the cantina with Obi-Wan Kenobi and there's a guy standing next to him and, and he's told, he doesn't like you and I don't like you either. And then a fight breaks out. It's a remarkable scene. Uh, and then uh, oh, the movie gets better from there. But some people don't. Some people are like that. They don't like you. We can't figure it out. Sometimes we can be the same way with other people. And I've noticed... Uh, just as an observation, uh, as a leader, uh, I've led in churches now for a while, and, and uh, pastors and leaders will sometimes face this too, where sometimes people don't like us. For all kinds of reasons, they don't like us. And we can develop people who are, I don't know if they're enemies, but they're sometimes detractors. And in life, we can develop this, and it's hard. I mean, isn't it hard when somebody doesn't like you? And actually, not even that. When somebody doesn't like you and kind of wants things to go wrong for you sometimes. We get those people in our lives. And God prepares a table before us in the presence of those people. I will say as a, a word here, when we get to those moments where we have people who don't like us, and we know it, and there's sort of enmity there in relationships that we may have, 
Jesus' words when he says pray for your enemies need to be practiced in those cases. David's not saying this here, but I just, I, this has to be pointed out. That when, when we have times where people don't like us or we don't like other people, we have that, those struggles in relationships that are so deep, like an enemy. When Jesus says pray for your enemies, what he's saying is, look, somebody may not like you. Somebody may even want harm for you, but you're not going to do the same to them. You're going to love them. You're going to humanize them. You're never going to let them become an, a them or an other or something. You're going to let them be named in your prayer life specifically, and you're going to lift them up to the Lord because otherwise, if you don't, it will eat away at your heart and pull you away from the, your Lord. Pray for your enemies. I know when I've had people who have, I've had struggles with, I pray for them specifically, and it's remarkable what it does to your heart your relationship with the Lord in relation to that person. Jesus was right on when he said that. So David had physical enemies. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. We can also talk, though, about another category that is spiritual enemies. I think this plays in here, too. And I'm not going to lump in psychological and emotional with this. Spiritual is its own category. Psychological and emotional, we'll make a comment about that. That's its own category. Spiritual enemies, that is, it's a heart issue. And it's something that affects this relationship, that we could have uh, issues in this life that pull us away from this relationship and affect our, our attitude and our heart and the affections of our heart towards God and towards his world. Specifically, I would suggest that David's worst spiritual enemy is himself. When he commits that sin with Bathsheba of adultery, it's lust that he's giving into, which is a sin I mean, not just the, the giving into it, but the, the lust itself that took hold in his heart, allowing that to take hold is sinful itself. It's not just like people want to say in our culture, exploring your sexuality or something. Lust is sinful. And David gives in to the spiritual enemy of his self-sovereignty, of making himself God in that case, to clean up his mess that he caused because of sin and letting that sin get a hold in his life. His biggest spiritual enemy was himself. He kept the temptations too close instead of fleeing from them. And as a result, he broke this relationship and he broke a whole bunch of these relationships in a really messy way. We can, of course, I would suggest, have psychological and emotional enemies as well in this life. Our past can haunt us in ways that affect our spiritual life and our physical life in many ways. We can have sin that was dealt to us growing up that can affect us profoundly, and we can have sinned against others that affects us profoundly and is unresolved at this stage of life. And we can then cope poorly with those things to compensate. We can uh, dig into food as a compensation, or we can, people can uh, sort of run from church to church to compensate for those things from the past. They can give into anger, self-esteem issues, either too high or too low, grudges, all kinds of things like that. And we end up having these enemies that war at us inside and outside. But even though David's now a human in the passage, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, all those different enemies that we may have, the Lord is still my shepherd in this passage. And so the key question is simple. It's the same question we could ask every week is, how are you letting God shepherd you in those times? That is to say, is the Lord your shepherd? Is he in command? Is he sovereign over your life when stuff seems out of control? 
Is the Lord sovereign over your life when things are frustrating, infuriating, annoying, sad, depressing, when you feel rejected? Is the Lord sovereign and the Lord over your life when the past haunts and hurts from your past come to get you and keep pulling at you and pulling you away from others and from God? When the temptations of today lurk around the corner? When you actually have physical enemies or people who want your worst, not your best? Is the Lord sovereign over those situations and over your very heart in those moments? That's what God is establishing in setting a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He's the shepherd of your soul in all circumstances. And we need to let him be sovereign over all circumstances. And the way we do that is simply say something like, your will be done and relent. Now, the issue of the table, that is a, a setting to eat. It doesn't, doesn't mean it has to be a literal table. It's a place of hospitality. And uh, back in David's day, it would have been the same in Jesus' day, it's even the same in the Middle East today, that hospitality is of the utmost importance. It's paramount in the culture and cultures of the Middle East. To show hospitality, even to enemies if they were around and needed that hospitality, was part of your duty. I mean, I've sat, I've gone to the Middle East, it was 20 years ago, and I've sat in Bedouin tents where they've served. They didn't have much to serve, but they served because hospitality was so important. I've been in places where people didn't have much, and hospitality had to be done. That's how they do it. It's their duty, and it's their honor, in fact, in many cases, to show hospitality. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's a place of rest to have that table set before you and have the Lord do it. But the other thing we should recognize is that in a hospitable moment like that, the Lord preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies, it's the place where the host controls what's going on. The host controls the menu. The host controls the conduct that he's going to show to the guests. To set a place before you in the presence of your enemies is God's way of showing that he's in control over your enemies. He's sovereign. He runs the show. And it demonstrates as well to those enemies who's in control of your life and who's got you covered in all situations. I think you can see this. If we go back to the case of David with Absalom, Psalm 3 is one of the psalms where David speaks out sort of his anguish and anxiety over that as a prayer to the Lord. I'll read it. You can just hear it. You don't need to turn there. But David says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But if the Lord sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies, all of a sudden it demonstrates to those enemies, you know what? God will deliver him. God is currently delivering him, and God will continue to deliver him. That's what God is doing. It goes on. It says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. God setting a table before us in the presence of our enemies is God demonstrating his sovereign control over all the circumstances of our lives from the inmost parts to those external enemies that would fight and war against us. And so the question 
comes to us, will you let God set the table? Will you allow God to set the table when life seems out of control, when life seems crazy? And we recognize that that the Lord is my shepherd, the greatest demonstration of that, and the one where we need to allow the Lord to set the table is through the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's the one who came and wants to set the table so he can fix the mess that we've made of life. And he will do it. The enemy wants to destroy. What does Jesus want to do? He wants to make us whole. He wants to give us life abundant starting now. The other two things in the psalm that stand out is the oil, you anoint my head with oil, and the cup running over. The oil on the head, it does also strike us as a little bit strange in our day when we don't go around pouring oil on each other's heads. Um, And frankly, most of us probably don't use oil as in olive oil is what's being referred to here as like hand lotion or something like that, but it functionally can work that way. It was great for the relief of maladies in the ancient world. It was, of course, fuel for lamps. It was uh, for consecration because it's not a cheap item even today. It's not exactly cheap. It was even more expensive back in David's day for consecration of kings and of priests to anoint them with oil and let it run down. It's, it's a cleansing and purifying feeling. If you've cleaned up and taken a bath and gotten yourself clean, it is like putting on a lotion. You feel smooth, feel clean after that. But the significance of oil throughout Scripture is uh, as divine blessing for obedience. When the people are obedient, then the promise of God is you're going to have oil in abundance. This expensive, important thing that's so useful in life, you will have it. It's also used for rebuke. It will be withheld through disobedience. But most importantly, the oil throughout Scripture is, represents joy and the joy of the Lord. That we would have the oil of joy poured over us. And one of the distinctive features about joy is that joy is kind of like a battery inside of you. That is to say, it's self-sufficient against all the circumstances going on around you, right? You put a battery in a remote control car, the car drives around, all kinds of barriers could be there, but the car still has energy and power despite the barriers. That's how joy is supposed to work in us that comes from the Lord. It's like its own source of energy that comes from the Father, and it's not dependent on the circumstances around us to be joyful. And joy, by its very nature, comes out. It has to. If it doesn't come out, it's not actually joy. It's something else that's going on. And why we bring this up and why this gets brought up in the psalm, I think you can do a test to see if the joy of the Lord is in you. And that is to say, are the pressures of, as the pressures of life close in, do you feel the joy of the Lord or the anxieties of life? Which one do you feel in a more pronounced way? The, the joy of the Lord as if a battery is working inside of you? And yes, the circumstances make a difference. And yes, the circumstances can press, but they are not the thing that motivates me to act and operate in the world, or is anxiety the thing that's acting, making me act and operate in the world and respond to my surroundings? The oil of joy is the divine blessing of the Father, who, or the shepherd who sets the table for us in the presence of my enemy and has control over all those circumstances. He pours the oil of joy on us to demonstrate his control and also so that we feel and experience his control and sovereignty. 
Third thing that's there is his, the cup runs over. I do like the older translations on this just because it flows so nice. My cup runneth over. I mean, just say that. My cup runneth over. It's nice. For willing to live as sheep, to let the shepherd lead us to green pastures, to lead us to still waters, can God actually get into the deepest part of our soul to work on the toughest, most resistant parts of you? Are we willing to let him do that so that, in fact, we can experience his blessing? That's what the cup runneth over is. It's, it's his blessing. And when we allow God in, when we allow his abundance, uh, God in, his abundance flows over, his care, his rest, his protection, these are all part of his abundance ro- running, running over, his sovereignty, his provision, his guidance, joy, redemption, those are all his cup running over in our life. And it will, like joy that comes out, affect other people in a positive way. I think David models the turn from his ways of not living under sovereignty to the way of living under sovereignty back in that when he has committed the sin with Bathsheba and sent Uriah to his death to cover up for this and then an innocent dies, an innocent baby dies and all of this. David famously in Psalm 51 when he realizes all the wrong that he's done and all the self-sovereignty and the enemies even within, not just without, but within, he prays that, created me a clean heart, O God. He says, Lord, I haven't just sinned against these people. Ultimately, I've sinned against you. In fact, he says, I've sinned against you and you alone, because that's first and foremost what a sin against another person is. He acknowledges I'm not living by your joy. I'm not letting the cup runneth over. I'm not letting you be sovereign over the enemies in my life. I'm trying to take care of those things myself. But he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Set things right. Set the table in a different way so that I can live in a different way under your care and under your sovereignty. We know that the only one who can truly do this for us is our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so the challenge is to not let those enemies around us dictate how we're going to operate in the world but to let the good shepherd set the table, give us that joy from the inside that allows the good shepherd to be victorious over the enemies that war at us and oppress us and push on us in these anxious times. Let's pray together. Lord, set a table before us. We want your deliverance, we want your redemption, but we need to deal with the stuff that presses on us. And sometimes we try too often. In fact, most of the time, God, we try and do it alone, try and do it on our own, try and be self-sufficient, our own sovereigns, when you have already promised that you will set a table before uh, yourself in the presence of our enemies, and you have overcome. You've already made the promise. You've already made the declaration. Lord, give us the strength and fortitude to actually take you at your word. Today, we want to hear your voice. If there's anybody watching or listening, Lord, who doesn't know the Good Shepherd, may today be the day that you say yes. Lord, set the table before you in the presence of my enemies so that I can experience your deliverance through Jesus Christ. So that I can experience your abundance and the joy of the Lord because I've been obedient to the call to follow Jesus Christ. Lord, may that be our call today and our response. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.